Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week. My name is Jared St. Clair, and this episode of Vitality Radio is going to be a doozy, I believe. There will be a lot of uh, really important information here. Um, This certainly goes more on the side of health freedom and the information that you need to know to protect yourself and your family uh, more so than it does, uh, you know, what vitamin to take for for what issue. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about about uh, the politics of health. We're going to talk a lot about what we learned during COVID and going way, way, way back before COVID uh, with my guest. I believe this is going to be a must listen for you, your family and friends. So I hope you'll share it uh, once you've had an opportunity to listen to it yourself. Vitality Radio, of course, always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful. You can give us a call at 801-292-6662. That's 801 801- 292-6662 or jump online vitalitynutrition.com and check us out there. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest today who I am feel honored to be able to share a stage with on October 7th at the Your Health Freedom Symposium put together by Your Health Freedom Utah and uh, my friend Kristen Chevrier, who is one of the great warriors in the fight for truth uh, when it comes to our health and our freedoms and liberty that we are trying to hold on to in this country right now. Uh, the guest that I have for you, her name is Meryl Nass. Meryl, welcome to Vitality Radio. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to have you here. As we discussed prior to the uh, show, I uh, I know two of the most the the best people in my life are probably two of the biggest fans of yours. Uh, so I'm very excited to hear what you have to say today. But uh, as we discussed prior, I, I'd like you to kind of go back and give uh, those who aren't familiar with you uh, an idea of kind of where you came from, why it is that you do what you do, and and how you came to do it. Okay, so I am uh, a doctor, a physician. Um, my license is currently suspended by the Board of Maine because I was spreading information dur- misinformation during COVID, allegedly, and treating people with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Um, I will have a final hearing, um, actually in two weeks, on the 19th of September, and we'll find out what the board has decided to do with me as a result of all that. And um, at the same time, Uh, my attorneys and I have filed a lawsuit against the board for a malicious prosecution since um, they dropped the charges of spreading misinformation and uh, prescribing off-label medications before the hearing started and then made up some new charges, um, all of which have been shot down. And so my my license has been suspended for 20 months um, for really no reason. Okay, now let's go back. Now, now I'm an old lady. When I was a young doctor um, in my 30s, I, I happened to go to a meeting um, and I lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, and students from UMass came to the meeting and said, 
a professor was doing germ warfare research on anthrax at the university. And I was actually an instructor uh, in medicine at the University of Massachusetts also at the time. And I was concerned. So I was assigned to read this professor's contract and his curriculum vitae, his resume, and get back to the meeting next month, which I did. And I discovered that he was doing research on anthrax. And although the contract was titled Studies for to Make a Better Anthrax Vaccine, it was in fact a research using some primitive form of genetic engineering to develop new anthrax strains. And this concerned me and it concerned others. And I started uh, researching this along with uh, the local Quaker group. And we found that in fact, the US military was going beyond what it was allowed to do. Um, and this particular researcher had worked at Fort Detrick previously. Um, I also decided I'd better learn something about anthrax. We, they didn't teach it in medical school. There's only about one case per decade in the United States in humans and a few cases in animals. Um, so I studied up uh, for three years on anthrax and read about all, all the noted anthrax epidemics in the world over the last 15 years. And so I came up with two important findings that I thought had to be, I had to write about, and I'd never really written a, a paper before, a professional paper, and I had, I had a little bit of help doing that. One paper showed that in Rhodesia, anthrax had been used as a biological weapon against blacks during the Rhodesian Civil War in the late 1970s. And I was able to show, I was actually the first person in the world who was able to take an epidemic and show using science and uh, epidemiology and statistics that it was due to biological warfare. It could not have been a natural event. Um, the other thing I discovered was again, that the army program to do biological defense research was actually doing biological offensive research using criteria that the program itself had established for what was mm -hmm. what kinds of research would be considered offensive and what would be considered defensive. So I published those papers. And then I wrote about how one might go about uh, preventing biological warfare in the future and how you would investigate epidemics. So in a few short years, this was starting in 1989, I was one of the very few people in, in the United States that knew anything about anthrax and biological warfare. And then suddenly the Gulf War happened. And so um, I was sought out as a speaker to talk about biological warfare and anthrax. And, and subsequently I became very knowledgeable about Gulf War syndrome and the anthrax vaccine. So the anthrax vaccine was never properly licensed. It had never gone through full review by FDA. It had been approved for use before the FDA was actually regulating vaccines. Up until 1972, a branch of the NIH was basically waving vaccines through uh, using a rather perfunctory um, set of standards. And because 
the polio vaccines had been approved even after it had been shown by this group that they were causing uh, children to develop polio, that the virus had not been fully inactivated. Um, and because of some other problems, Congress decided to move vaccine regulation out of NIH and into FDA in 1972. And at that point, FDA was supposed to go through all the vaccines and basically relicense them, go through a process, review and decide whether they actually qualified for a license. The anthrax vaccine didn't. Uh, it There was no efficacy. There was no real meaningful efficacy study for the anthrax vaccine. And it turned out that the anthrax vaccine had been developed by the US Army and the formulation had been changing many times over a period of about 20 years. And so studies that had been done on it before were done of formulations that were no longer being used. Anyway, um, I pointed this out and again, because very few people knew about anthrax or anthrax vaccines, suddenly I wound up um, in 1998 when the military started its mandatory anthrax vaccine program, I wound up being someone who could speak and write about it. And many, many families of military service members who were being mandated to take the vaccine contacted me and we, we formed a coalition and we fought against the vaccine mandates. And eventually after about five years, we were actually able to get a judge to revoke the license of the vaccine. So I do have a question about that. You mentioned early on that uh, anthrax is in the United States is basically a non-issue. There's it almost never happens. Uh, what was the story coming from the military in terms of why they were mandating anthrax? Was it because of the potential for chemical warfare? Is that what they were saying? Yes, exactly. So the military at that in 1998 had a blue sky program. They had a hope that they could develop vaccines for every potential biological warfare threat and vaccinate everybody in the military against all of them. And their soldiers would then theoretically be able to operate in an environment that was contaminated with biological warfare agents. So that was the theory, you know, it's not a really okay. clever theory because it's hard to develop vaccines that work and are safe. Um, the military was, you know, that had a lot of um, chutzpah to think that they could in a short period of time do this when they'd never really been able to do it before. Um, and it's not been, nobody's done it since, but that was the plan. And it would elevate the status of, you know, physicians and bioscientists in the military, as had happened during World War II, when the doctors and scientists who were working on biological warfare for Japan suddenly became preeminent in the military instead of an afterthought. In any event, <laughs> so the, the military decided they would start this program using two already licensed vaccines for anthrax and smallpox and they would start vaccinating everyone in the military for those two. And this would be a way to bring in slowly this much larger program, which according to some in the military could include 75 different vaccines eventually. 
Wow. So they started with anthrax in 1998 because it was considered, even though it's not really a medical problem, it doesn't spread person to person, it is considered a, a, a classic biological warfare agent because mm -hmm. although it's, it, anthrax is a bacterium, it makes its own spore, which makes it highly impermeable to weather, moisture. You know, you can freeze it, you can heat it up, you can explode it from a bomb under high pressure, and the spore survives. Um, when it's in, the, in soil, it can survive for 100 years, potentially. And then when the right weather conditions occur, it can start growing again in the soil and germinate and cause infections in animals that are grazing in that soil. Hmm. So, so that's the story of anthrax. Um, yeah. You can, yeah, you can, you can release it from an airplane and the UV light, the, the dryness, whatever, doesn't bother it. And it will just, while it's in the air, people can inhale it and potentially get anthrax. When it's in the ground, once it hits the ground, generally people are not going to be exposed to it anymore, but animals will. So animals okay. can pick it up. And then if humans, if those are your pets and you, you brush against them, you rub them, you know, you, you too could get a skin anthrax infection. Or if okay. you eat, if, it, if a cow or a goat, you know, browses in that air and gets anthrax and dies and you butcher it, you can get skin anthrax. If you eat it, you can get gastrointestinal anthrax. So it does make so sense. Anyway, uh, I mean, as a biological weapon, it makes a lot of sense. Right. It, it was. Yeah. It's a primitive biological weapon um, that people could could make even during World War II and even before World War II. It's that primitive. Okay. So yeah, it goes back a long ways. Um, when I sort of moved over into the issue of anthrax vaccine, I suddenly realized. And had not in my earlier, you know, I'd been a doctor for, I don't know, 15 or 18 years at that point. I hadn't realized how dangerous vaccines could be. And I hadn't realized how the, the regulation of them, how the testing and review um, could, could basically be performed in a very um, perfunctory or even fake way. Um, so when the military wanted this vaccine, the military was more strong, was stronger than the FDA. So the FDA just went along with it and never issued a final rule, never completed their review, left the anthrax vaccine in a legal no man's land, which allowed the military to use it however it wanted. Now, the factory mm. making the vaccine was really horrible. There, there was rust. There were things dripping down from the ceiling. It was awful. And the vials of vaccine, many of them that were stored in that factory, had visible growth of fungi and bacteria in them. So when the military finally said they were going to have an anthrax vaccine program and mandate it for everybody, the FDA went in and did an inspection, which they had not done for more than a decade, and leaving everything to the army. But when they realized two and a half million Americans were going to be vaccinated with this stuff, they thought, uh-oh, we better go in. So they did, and they immediately shut down the factory and quarantined almost all the vaccine that was there, but they allowed the military to have 2 million doses. And those 2 million doses were used between 1998 and 2000 and made thousands of soldiers sick, chronically ill. And, and we um, have evidence of, of that? 
Uh, oh, yes. There, there are a number of paper. Well, we don't have evidence of how many soldiers became ill, but there are certainly okay. many papers published talking about the illnesses. Um, the Government Accountability Office um, did a, an investigation for Congress and determined that one to two percent of, of people receiving this vaccine uh, developed a permanent disability. So um, we wow. have that information. And Congress was so concerned. There were so many people concerned at the time. We're going back now 25 years um, that uh, a whole series of hearings were held in Congress in both the House and the Senate about the anthrax vaccine and about Gulf War syndrome. Gulf War syndrome is not, so anthrax vaccine is not the only cause of Gulf War syndrome. There were many, many noxious, toxic exposures that um, our soldiers were exposed to in the Gulf and in preparation to go to the Gulf. They got many, many vaccines. Some people got 20 different vaccines, um, but it was a contributor for sure. Okay. So then what happened with that? When If Congress was aware and uh, there was evidence that this is what was happening, they'd shut down the facility. What happened with the anthrax vaccine after that? Um, a lot. So Carl Rove <laughs> wrote a paper and said, said the anthrax vaccine is a problem for us, for the um, Bush administration. And there was a plan in the Pentagon to end the, the mandatory program in 2001. Okay. Um, the, uh, the, the entire factory was bulldozed and rebuilt at taxpayer expense, but the FDA did not allow it to reopen, even though it was rebuilt in 1999. And then something interesting happened uh, in September and October of 2001, which was the Twin Towers went down and then the anthrax letters were sent. Right. And the anthrax letters led to, a tr you know, there was tremendous media about them. Pe people around the country were very worried. It was just like COVID, you know, uh, people were ironing their mail. Uh, people were doing crazy mm -hmm. things or putting their mail into microwave ovens to try to kill potential anthrax spores because nobody knew if it could be in your, you know, mail. Right. Um, so again, I sort of wound up doing a lot of media and explaining to people what you could expect from anthrax spores, how to deal with them, um, you know, all of that. So I wound up consulting for the World Bank and the Director of National Intelligence, et cetera, um, uh, you know, as quoted in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, what happened then, though, as far as the vaccine, was Tommy Thompson was head of DHHS, and he said, we will, we will make the FDA license this vaccine and get it for everybody so people wouldn't need to be worried about anthrax anymore, even though, again, it had never been shown to actually work. Um, and he did that. And so in January of 20, uh, 2002, the new factory that had been sitting there was licensed, and it started churning out vaccine, and we started giving it to soldiers all over again. And mm -hmm. large quantities, 75 million doses, were purchased for potential use in civilians as well. And that, that's where we stand now. Okay. So obviously this gives you a 
the a substantial background in in all of this stuff, and you did mention already that uh, the the fears surrounding anthrax and anthrax in the mail that you were reminded of those things as you started to see the fear with COVID. So if we fast forward to today, unless there's something else you need to cover between uh, then and COVID, where are the correlations? What are your concerns at this point? Well, um, the media were used in both cases to drum up a tremendous amount of fear. And in Mm -hmm. in the intervening 20 years, um, the media continued to be used to drum up fear about Ebola, Zika, avian flu, right? Um, Yep. So we have had basically since those anthrax letters, the U.S. government, the WHO, other nations have been claiming that there's a pandemic a minute. You know, on the average, every two years, a pandemic of international concern has been declared and a drumbeat of fear has has been generated. Um, and the United States has spent, you know, a king's ransom trying to develop vaccines for D- Zika and Ebola and uh, avian flu and all these other things. And by the way, they don't have a decent vaccine for any of them, despite us spending, you know, maybe $100 billion to do it. And um, at the same time, a huge biodefense, biological warfare and pandemic defense establishment has been created. So again, the U.S. government has spent apparently now well over 150 million billion, sorry, billion dollars um, on this new um, field of biological defense, which could be drugs, vaccines, tests, masks, um, you know, all sorts of things, uh, monoclonal antibodies uh, and different sorts of tests. So PCR tests, rapid tests, color tests, um, culture, media, et cetera. And um, we have created something called a national strategic stockpile in which $7 billion worth of drugs, vaccines, masks, gloves, PPE of all types, ventilators, mm-hmm. et cetera, are collected um, in about 12 locations around the country, controlled by CDC, um, and are supposed to be able to be pushed out in the event of a dangerous pandemic right. or biological warfare, which are basically overlapping categories. Now, let, let me go backwards just a little bit, because there's something you brought up that I, I forgot to ask you about. So during the or, or the anthrax stuff that you were just talking about, all of that history that you have with it, you said that you specifically uh, got together with some other concerned people uh, and soldiers' families and things like that and fought for about five years to get the mandate uh, eliminated at, at the military level. Um, in that process... I'm trying to think of how to ask this question so it makes sense. In that process, you would have, I assume, uh, rub some people the wrong way and some levels, uh, high-level authority within the government, within the military. 
yet you were able to retain your license back then. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as you move forward, why you think things have shifted for you in terms because you were raising the red flag back then. You were you've been raising the red flag again uh, throughout COVID. And now all of a sudden your license has been pulled. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on why maybe you didn't ruffle the wrong feathers back in in those days. Uh, you, you know why you weren't uh, demonized back then. So I, so the military um, attempted to demonize me. I was told that a, a a military doctor had been assigned to read everything I wrote and try to find you know mistakes in it. Um, mm. But I'm I'm really careful, so there aren't too many mistakes in what I write. Uh, people don't people never challenge me on the facts. Um, but in 1999, I was traveling, um, so. At that time, 80% of the pilots in the military were actually reservists, so National Guard or Reserve, and they had regular jobs working for the airlines or FedEx and um, would drill once a month. They could leave the military at any time, whereas if you were active duty, you you couldn't. You might get court-martialed if you tried. they so pilots were very concerned that if they got sick from the anthrax vaccine, they would lose their full time job. They would not be able to support their families. And they had a lot of power because they had the ability to leave. And so I I was befriended by a number of pilots who started spreading the word within the commercial pilot community about this vaccine. And uh, they had me flown to about 10 military bases during a drill weekend where I would talk to primarily pilots, but sometimes other soldiers and give a three hour talk on the anthrax vaccine. And at the end of that, those talks at, you know, after those 10 months, um, 250 pilots had resigned from the military, which was a considerable number. They the military claimed each one cost them $6 million in training. So that was a billion and a half dollars in training that, and loss of pilots. And, wow. uh, at, and so at the end of that period, um, I went away to visit a sick parent on a Friday and somebody set fire to my house. Um, Jeez. And so um, luckily I was well known and so when someone, you know, when the fire department heard it was my house, they had all the fire trucks from all the neighboring towns come by. And so they were able to put it out. It did about $80,000 worth of damage. But the house was saved. And I had an office in my home, too. And so my records, thank God, were saved as well. Um, so that's what happened to me then. Um, I, you know, I think my phone was tapped. Different things were happening. But I was not physically harmed. Um I think what's different about this pandemic is is that that may have been a dress rehearsal for what's happening now. Now, I think elites are are trying to really gain control of our governments and and us and impose a new system on us, uh, which is being ushered in under the guise of pandemic preparedness. And so now I'm threatening a much larger agenda than I was then. And, uh, and so are other doctors who complain about the medical approach to, to COVID. And so they've gone after all of us and, and they've taken control of social media and mainstream media now in a much, much 
more intense way than happened during the, the anthrax letters time when the media actually sometimes told the truth. Now they never do. Um, so yeah. it's really hard to get the word out. And so it was really, it was very important, I think, for what did get out into the media, national media, was that I had lost my license for spreading this information. That became national news, even though, you know, Dr. Luz's license for spreading misinformation, it's not really very newsworthy. But um, somebody made sure that it made the national news and all, you know, doctors around the country heard about it. And there were other doctors who lost their licenses, but I may have been the most prominent. Um, and so it managed to chill the speech of doctors throughout the United States. If you go on Substack, you're going to find a number of doctors have Substacks trying to write about what's going on, and the majority of them do not use their real names. Right. Yeah, because the the risk is obvious uh, at this point. And it's interesting, too, because I, I was uh, listening to another conversation on a podcast. I can't remember what it was the other day. But the big concern was self-censorship uh, because of the level of censorship and demonization, losing of licenses, you know, all these all these types of things that have been happening to uh, people in positions of authority uh, when talking about these topics that many people are simply just self-censoring. They may believe something, but they will not necessarily speak that something because of the fear of, of losing their livelihood. Um, when I look back, I realize that I too self-censored to a degree. And um, if I did it, then everybody is doing it. Um, <laughs> I think when, you know, you don't want to upset people, you don't want to challenge them too much. You don't want mm -hmm. them to think you're crazy. Um, if you're trying to convince someone of something, you want to seem like you are a credible person. And so um, we have all learned, I think, to self-censor. And yeah. hopefully when this is all over, we will unlearn that. Agreed. I, I can tell you the same thing. And I'm in far less vulnerable position, I guess, uh, being that I don't have a license that somebody can strip from me. But uh, even during COVID with what I thought were some relatively uh, tame shows that I did because I'm on local radio as well as uh, podcast. Um, I was approached by the local radio uh, station four different times telling me they were going to remove my show if I continued to spread misinformation uh, about COVID and COVID vaccines and things like that. And, and what I ended up doing basically is I have a I have two podcast episodes a week that come out. I have a Wednesday show and a Saturday show. The Saturday show hits the radio and the podcast at the same time. It's the same show. And so that one I, I kept for the less controversial topics and the Wednesday show gets both barrels um, because I'm, you know, I'm not being threatened there. So even in that way, I'm self-censoring in terms of, you know, who hears it, the people on terrestrial radio that happen to come across my show from time to time don't hear uh, the full story, we'll say, uh, and the people that listen to my podcast do. So it's it's a real challenge because everybody it, there's a, there's a, a level that you can push to that can get it to the point where your voice can't be heard very effectively anymore uh, and you know thank God for things like Substack and Rumble and places like that where there is still some free speech but it's uh, it's incredible what's happened uh, with this 
new level of censorship that none of us have experienced in this country since its founding. Right. Exactly. People don't realize that uh, this is as intense as uh, what the Soviets and the East Germans faced. Yeah, absolutely. So then you you overlapped two things uh, before I asked that last big question. And you said pandemics and biological warfare are, um, I can't remember how you worded it, but related anyway. Uh, talk to right. us about they that over, a little bit. Yes. So, well, we've, for instance, we've called COVID a pandemic, right? A And mm-hmm. um, Tony Fauci and Peter Daszak and many other uh, officials have worked very hard to convince us that it was due to bats. Um, it was due to spillover for, you know, natural occurrence, but it wasn't. It was made in a lab. What we don't know is whether it leaked out by mistake or whether it was deliberately spread. We're certain it was made in a lab. It has too many, you know, at least a dozen different crazy things in the genome that should not be there if it was an if it was a natural um, coronavirus. Right. And what is that? It's it's a biological warfare agent. The th- the odd things in the genome are all designed to make it more virulent or more transmissible. So um, natural, there are four naturally occurring coronaviruses apart from SARS one and MERS, which are very recent uh, additions of the coronaviruses. Mm-hmm. We didn't know about either of them before two thousand two. So up until 2002, there were four coronaviruses that could affect humans, and every one of them just caused a cold, right? Right. Minor. We didn't even think about them. They could cause, uh, there, there were other coronaviruses that could affect animals and, and could cause a more serious disease than a cold, but it wasn't a big deal. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, SARS-1 appears, and it has many of the properties of, of this SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, and it causes very serious illness and caused death in about 10% of the cases. It came out of nowhere. They did find um, an actual virus from a bat in China. And so it probably was natural. Okay. Probably. Why do I say probably? Because Tony Fauci started spending a lot of money on coronaviruses around 1999. And that first SARS virus, the first deadly SARS coronavirus, didn't appear until late in 2002. So what did Fauci know in 1999 that we didn't, you know, why would you start putting many millions of dollars into a a virus that only causes a cold? Um, Apparently it's a relatively easy virus to cause mutations to, to play with, to, to make changes in the genome. And subsequent to 2002, once 2002 and 2003 came along and there was this deadly SARS coronavirus, um, then many countries started researching it, and there were a number of escapes. We know of six escapes in the first two years after SARS-1 from laboratories in Taiwan, Singapore, and China, in Beijing. Beijing, one lab in Beijing, I think, had three separate escapes. And the, why did we know about them? It's because people got sick. And you could trace back that the infection came from the lab. So... Um, So I'm trying to make a couple of points, which are that it may look like a natural, you know, pandemic, but it could be due to biological warfare or the development in a lab of new virulent microorganisms. Mm -hmm. Um, Omicron uh, 
had about 50 new mutations that had not been seen in other coronaviruses. It appears to have been made in a lab as well. It, it was more transmissible than the earlier uh, coronaviruses, but it was less serious. And it tended to, to be in the upper airway, not down, not infect the lungs so much. And so we've had much, and all the coronaviruses uh, that have really spread widely over the last couple of years have been developed from this Omicron family. And that uh, may be why they're, they're milder. But in any event, so you, until you really study these things and look very closely at the genome and the history and everything else, you don't know whether they're natural or whether they're lab derived. And if they're lab derived, you know, we may never know whether they were deliberately spread or accidentally spread. In my view, the, the real issue is to stop making these lab derived gain of function viruses and bacteria, you know, that the, this whole uh, area of investigation needs to end. It's simple. It's like, it's like making nukes that you can carry in your pocket. Um, why would you do that? Why would you develop something like that? It can only cause harm. Now, we have a biological weapons treaty, but for the last 30 years, the federal U.S. government has blocked it from being turned into something that could be effective. And um, probably part of the reason is because we've had a biological defense program that has veered over the line into offense. And, you know, we, I mean, Fauci, the NIH, your taxpayer dollars, we're paying Ralph Barrick and we're paying Xi Jinping to develop more virulent, more dangerous coronaviruses. And your tax dollars are also paying for other researchers around the country to develop more virulent other viruses and bacteria. So, is this something we want to continue doing or not? I mean, right now, the threat of pandemics is what is being used to control us and to spend a huge amount of our money. In Biden's budget for next fiscal year, which starts in October, he has asked for $20 billion just for the Department of Health and Human Services for pandem international pandemic preparedness. That's the U.S. and other countries, $20 billion just for HHS. Now, there's more money for pandemics in the State Department budget, USAID, Homeland Security, et cetera. So, and the WHO wants to get into the management of pandemics and biological warfare also. And they, they have come up with all sorts of different amounts that it's going to cost. So people have estimated anywhere from $30 billion to $200 billion to set up a system around the world that performs surveillance for pandemics and potential pandemic or microorganisms and, and deals with them. And then anywhere from $30 billion a year and on up to make that system keep going. Of course, if Biden wants to spend $20 billion, you know, I, just from the U.S. budget, I think it's going to cost a lot more than $30 billion worldwide to continue to do this. Then this so-called preventive, protective system that is being built, it's being built around us right now. Um, according to the WHO's proposed pandemic treaty, 
will require all nations to share every dangerous virus that they, and bacterium that they discover. So if you find a new virus by, you know, swabbing bats and swabbing wild animals and wastewater and people, if you find something you think might be really dangerous, you have to give it to the WHO and share it globally. That is another way, a very benign way of saying that the WHO is requiring countries to proliferate biological weapons, to share biological weapons. It's basically a guarantee that everyone's going to have biological weapons. And then if, if we wind up with a pandemic as a result of one of them, we're not going to know where it came from because everybody has it. Nobody can right. be blamed. Um, hmm. And we may be looking at continuous pandemics to weaken us, to, you know, to, if you read the WHO documents about what countries are expected to do to prevent pandemics, it looks like a shopping list for Bill Gates. You see that we have to develop lots of vaccines very rapidly. Everything needs to be digitized, you know, healthcare needs to be digitized, right? Your health records all need to go online. <laughs> you know, we have to yep. share all our health records. Um, everybody has to, they don't say everybody needs a doctor. They say everybody needs health coverage, which means everybody in the world is expected to buy health insurance in order to build up the health insurance industry. So this is where we're going. And um, hopefully we're not going to get there because the American people and people of the world are going to say, no, this is not the future we want of being continuously worried about pandemics and being at risk of pandemics constantly because that's all we're looking for and we're sharing them. Oh, that's a lot to digest uh, for, especially for people maybe that are a little bit less uh, familiar with all of this. So then let me ask you this question. You clearly had uh, enough experience, enough time uh, looking at this and researching this that when 2000, late 2019, early through 2020 came around and this new coronavirus was being talked about. Um, you know, I think everybody listening to the show remembers that pretty clearly uh, when there was, you know, all the fear mongering started happening and suddenly businesses were starting to be shut down. I remember that the, the biggest thing that was impactful in my life personally, I had tickets to a uh, expo in Anaheim, California, the first weekend of March uh, that I've been going to since I was a, a, a young boy. And uh, it was canceled three days in advance of that. And that was kind of the first big cancellation uh, that I had seen because that's an expo that draws uh, hundreds of thousands of people every year. And all of a sudden it was gone. So that's when, because I was doing this podcast at the time and I was asking my own questions about, you know, <laughs> from my point of view, it all seemed pretty fishy right out of the gate. But for people who haven't been reading this and studying this and looking at it for years, um, it just seemed, I think, very, I guess, natural. Uh, like this is just a thing that happens every once in a while and we need to, you know, be uh, cautious about it. You had a front row seat, clearly. What were your thoughts when this whole thing started rolling around in early 2020? Well, apparently I was naive because I, I thought it was for real. I mean, I assumed that it was probably a lab escape, 
And I wrote that, you know, on my blog in early March because I knew okay. that, you know, labs are where SARS had escaped from labs many times before. Um, I was telling people what to do to protect themselves. I was aware mm -hmm. of the benef potential benefits of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine in February because we were told that by the Chinese, it seemed to be the most promising drug they were using. And we were told that by Didier Raoult in uh, Marseille, France. Right. So I was watching that drug. I had used it a lot. So I was very familiar, very comfortable with it, whereas I'd never used ivermectin. So I wasn't comfortable with ivermectin. And we didn't know about it at that point. Okay. Um, so it took me a while, it took me until, I don't know, January, February of 2021 before I started using ivermectin. But um, I also knew what what a normal response is to a pandemic, that there are certain things the government needs to identify very quickly, like you know, what is the incubation period? What What is the R0, which means how many people does one person infect? Um, what are the modes of infection, et cetera, and, and how to test. And the fact that the government was not allowing people to test, even though CDC had a test, was very curious. And so we'd hear these odd stories coming from hospitals in Washington state where they had the first known cases. I mean, we don't know when it entered the country. It didn't, there are a lot of people who got sick in the United States with an odd illness around Christmas of 2019, but there right. were no tests. There was no diagnosis. There was no name for a disease. So we don't know what they had. Um, but the people who were getting sick and winding up in hospitals in Washington state were not being allowed to test and CDC was being, was hanging on to its test. Maybe that was because they knew it wasn't accurate. Um, or maybe looking back, you think maybe it was so the disease would spread more before you could identify it. And so there were odd, some odd government um, things going on at that time. And I pointed out, Government ought to be doing this, that, and the other. But this is what you can do yourself. If you want to use a mask, you use an N95, you know, or you make one out of certain materials, you know, and whatnot. So I was okay. quite concerned about the severity of the disease because I was hearing from doctors in hospitals who were treating the worst cases in ICUs. So, you know, that's the thing. Doctors hear about the worst cases and everybody else hears about the general cases. Right. Um, but right. by by late March of 2020, I was convinced it probably came from a lab. And that was because I had identified there was a cover up going on that uh, Christian Anderson and four other authors had written a paper in a journal called Nature Medicine. It's supposed to be a reputable journal. The scientists were all supposed to be very reputable scientists. And they wrote a paper that just did not make scientific sense. And the whole purpose of it was to claim that COVID couldn't possibly have come from a lab. It had to be natural. And they made straw man arguments and just odd, um, no logic to them. And when I read it, I mean, the reason I read it was because I happened to know two of the authors, slight, very slightly. And okay. I said, oh, my goodness, you know this is a crazy paper. I've not seen anything like this before. This makes no sense. How did it get into nature medicine? How did these people write it? And so I immediately, you know, in late March, wrote a paper about how this is, this is very strange. 
And then it was it was so strange that I kept thinking about it. And so then I read I wrote another paper and I started searching the internet for what else was written. And I found um, in the Lancet uh, a group of uh, authors, also cr very credible virologists, and Peter Daszak had written about how we must not question the origins of this because it may interfere with our relationship with China. And anyone who does so is a conspiracy theorist. And then I also found that Francis Collins, who was actually the head of the NIH, had written a blog post saying, you know, don't believe this, just believe us. If you see anything that's concerning to you, go to our rumor control page, blah, blah. And I said, oh, wow. Okay. So these three documents are evidence of a cover up. And then I, you know, started. And at that point, which was around the 20th, 25th of March, um, the federal agencies started beating up on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Yes. Tried to stop people from using it. And I had already used it in one or two patients with success. And I thought, why are they doing this? It's the only drug we have right now. It doesn't make any sense. And then I investigated that and wrote a very long st story about the suppression of hydroxychloroquine. Um, which I kept adding to until I had about 58 different ways that hydroxychloroquine use for COVID had been suppressed in the US and around the world, including the fact that the number two manufacturer of the active ingredient uh, for hydroxychloroquine actually exploded in Taiwan in December of 2020. So, um, you know, at that point I was well into the um, conspiracy theory uh, version of events, but being right. a doctor and a scientist. And at that point I'd published a lot of papers. I'd testified, uh, for six congressional committees, you know, I'd written the review article, the, the first review article on anthrax vaccine. Um, so people couldn't really dismiss me as a crank, you know, I was an expert and here I was coming out with all this stuff. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons they went after my license. Yeah, so because you did have, you weren't just somebody who popped out out of the blue and, and started crying foul, but you'd seen this before and, and uh, recognized a lot, of the, a lot of the signs. And so then I have a question that I think a lot of people probably have, and, and it's related, maybe a little unrelated in terms of this cons conspiratorial nature of this whole thing. But hydroxychloroquine has been used primarily, in my understanding, as kind of an anti-parasitic uh, medication, ivermectin as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on why it works for COVID? Okay, so um, both of these drugs have multiple mechanisms of action. And I just want to explain that we don't necessarily understand mechanisms of action. FDA, when it licenses a drug, doesn't no longer requires the manufacturer to actually specify on the label how the drug works. In fact, that may be considered a, uh, you know, commercial secret. Right. But um, ivermectin has about twenty different mechanisms of action, potential mechanisms of action that may occur in your body. So it, it, it's a complicated molecule. It has many different regions that can go to different receptors in your body. Okay. It, that's, I guess, a simplified way of saying it. So it actually now has been shown to kill a number of different 
families of viruses, as well as modulate your immune response. So modulating the immune response is important because people in the late stage of COVID, not for the first week or 10 days, but later develop autoimmune um, problems from it. Uh, and most likely that's because of deliberate things that were added to the genome. And um, both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin uh, potentially can modulate that autoimmune effect. Ivermectin better than hydroxychloroquine. But hydroxychloroquine also is well known to be an immune modulator. It is used in a number of autoimmune diseases, including um, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and others. It's also okay. used to treat Lyme disease. Now, Lyme is a funny illness that has features of infection, and it seems to also induce features of autoimmunity. And so hydroxychloroquine mm -hmm. may be useful for both. It's not used alone. It's usually used with another antibiotic called a macrolid, um, like Z-Pak or erythromycin type drugs for Lyme disease and uh, works well for that. So I've used it in quite a number of patients with Lyme disease and in some patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And so I, uh, again, I felt very comfortable with the drug because I'd used it and I'd used it over the long term in patients with these, you know, chronic conditions. So I had no fear of using it for 10 days for somebody with COVID. I knew that it was safe. Um, right. Ivermectin turned out to be even a more benign drug than hydroxychloroquine, although I didn't know it at the time. And um, you really have to give a very high dose before you get side effects in most people. I mean, either right. drug can cause allergic reactions, either drug potentially can cause all sorts of side effects, but you almost never see them. With hydroxychloroquine, it's important to get the dose right. If you give too much, um, you can kill somebody because of um, electrolyte shifts. You can get a, a cardiac arrhythmia, especially if mm. you're on other drugs that cause electrolyte shifts as well. Um, or if you're, you know, if you're not, nourished properly and you're very short of magnesium or potassium. <clears throat> um, what else can I tell you? Uh, both of these drugs are very long acting in your body. So they, they store in the tissues and the half-life is like at least a month for both of them, which means they can be used like vaccines. You can take them infrequently. And that in fact is how they are used for malaria and in the case right. of hydroxychloroquine, and for river blindness in the case of ivermectin, you only take them every once in a while, and you have enough stored in your body that is re being released slowly that it prevents malaria, you know, when you're bitten by a mosquito. And I've had malaria, so I've used the drug on myself as well. So that's another reason I feel comfortable with it. Um, and, if, and if you live in an area where you can get river blindness, you take the ivermectin once or twice a year, generally, and you don't get river blindness. I think that made these drugs dangerous in terms of the fact that they could supplant vaccines. They could act like vaccines. You could take them once a month or once a week, and you wouldn't need a vaccine. That's a big point, because the word you used is that makes these drugs dangerous. So the question I have is dangerous to who? <laughs> or whom, Exactly. Dan dangerous to those who insisted we needed to have vaccines for COVID. Now, why did that gotcha. happen? 
when the vaccines didn't work very well. They were slightly effective for a few months or in some cases yeah. weeks. And then they would no, not they would lose their effectiveness. And then o- over a little more time, they would actually make you more susceptible to COVID. Now, that's been shown in a number of studies. So that's right. real. Um, and we know they're not dangerous and they weren't tested properly. And most of the testing process was basically a joke. It was a pretend test. Nothing in the way the COVID vaccines were tested is how you would really test uh, a vaccine if you were serious about it. So they didn't, they didn't look for serious cases. You know, they, Pfizer, for example, was the central, they don't say that in their, um, description of the study. They say all the, all the PCR tests will be um, evaluated at a central lab. Well, the central lab turned to be at, turned out to be at Pfizer's headquarters. So they could decide which tests were positive and which were negative to make the study look like they had a 94% efficacy when they didn't. Anyway, um, why, why was it so important to get vaccines? Why were these drugs suppressed so that vaccines were necessary? That's a question that hasn't been answered yet. Hmm. All right. So there's so many different places we can go from here. And uh, we're obviously very close on time. I, I promised you an hour. I'm sure you're a very, very busy person, so I don't want to keep you all day. I can talk to you forever here. But let's do this because we are running up uh, uh, on our deadline here to to get done with this interview. A couple of things. You've gone through all of this. We now have a good picture of your history as a physician and primarily as a scientist and researcher of all these things, uh, pandemics and biological weapons and all of this. Um, You're going to be speaking at the Your Health Freedom uh, Symposium in Utah on October 7th. Uh, And for those of you who are interested in uh, seeing this live, uh, you you're not going to want to miss it. If you can get to West Jordan, Utah, uh, this is going to be a day full of incredible education from a lot of wonderful people, including um, Meryl Nass. My question is, at that um, event, what will be your focus in terms of the discussion there? What I'd like to do is talk about the plan uh, that uses what's called the, the global Uh, biosecurity agenda, this plan to surveil us all for um, pathogens and protect us by building up this huge uh, infrastructure and architecture of testing, treatment, um, vaccines, etc., and how that is being used or co-opted through the WHO and the UN to basically gain control, gain sovereignty over nations when there is a pandemic. So there there are two documents that are being worked on at the WHO, one being uh, a series of huge number of amendments to their existing international health regulations, the other document being a pandemic treaty. There has never been a pandemic treaty. We didn't need one. Nations could manage pandemics the way they wanted. But the idea is now WHO will call the shots and will tell us how we are to manage pandemics in the future. The the international health regulations already exist. The State Department says we're not going to run them, run these new amendments through the Senate. We're just going to adopt them. And they are binding. So both of these documents are completely different than everything else the WHO has done heretofore. 
and they will necessitate that nations obey the WHO. Mm -hmm. So they, the new amendments require that. So nations will have to perform surveillance for pandemics, will have to share the what they find, uh, you know, will have to go along with these vaccine programs, et cetera. The pandemic treaty is a slightly different kettle of fish in that um, it is a treaty, although the WHO keeps changing the name. They call it an accord, a convention, an instrument, and an other, um, because they don't want to call it a treaty because then it might have to go through the Senate and be ratified, and they would prefer to uh. avoid that. Um, and it will be an, it will not require a pandemic. It will be in force all the time. The other th and, and it too is binding, so it will require nations to follow its edicts all the time. And much of the treaty is to be determined by committees in the future. So if the United States government sides on to the treaty, they're saying we accept the fact that uh, a conference of the parties and a new bureau at the WHO will make up rules in the future that we will follow. This is very dangerous. You don't sign on, you don't sign a contract that's blank, right? And this right. is what the, the WHO is asking us and the other nations to do. Sign it and we'll make the decisions later. Let me add that this is a trick and the US government has already used this trick on Congress. Last December, in the middle of the National Defense Authorization Act was an 18 page bill on international pandemic preparedness. This is how Congress works. They throw bills into other bills that have to be passed, right? You have to fund the Defense Department every year. So that was a must-pass bill. 18 pages were all about pandemic preparedness. And part of it said, yes, the U.S. government is going to go along with a global biosecurity agenda. In future, the WHO, GAVI, One Health, One Health is, uh, I won't even get into One Health right now. It's too complicated. But um it's another way of putting the whole world under the jurisdiction of the WHO. And so Congress voted uh, for this National Defense Authorization Act in December. It is US law right now. And it says we're gonna go along with the WHO with what they want to do for international pandemic preparedness. Yeah, and if you are already uh, as horrified as I am about how the pandemic was handled in this country by CDC, FDA, NIH, and so on, um, you didn't have to look uh, too hard to see what was going on at the WHO level to recognize that it was horrifyingly <laughs> uh, misguided in the way that they were doing things during this as well. So the last thing we need is uh, to lose our sovereignty to that uh, group of individuals. And the idea of a blank contract being signed is, and and then the people who get to fill in the fine print afterwards uh, being at the WHO is a, uh, as horrifying as it gets, uh, for me anyway. So then in what is your ultimate goal? You're speaking out about this. You've lost your license. Uh, you know, hopefully that changes uh, at your hearing uh, in the future, but you've already put yourself at significant risk uh, in a variety of different ways. You're speaking out still. What do you hope to achieve by sharing this information with people? Uh, what can we do with this information? Uh, how do you hope that people will react and respond? So once you actually read the amendments and the treaty draft, right now we have drafts. It's not, it's not in final form. 
It's going to be, the plan is to vote on these two documents next May at the annual meeting of the WHO. Um, when you read them, it's so horrifying. Anybody who looks at them will say, no, 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 we cannot sign on to this. And um, so what, what I'm aiming to do is educate Congress of what these documents really have in them, what the plan is. We've already got 51 members of the House of Representatives who have co-sponsored a bill to exit the WHO and defund the WHO because, precisely because of these sorts of problems. And mm. so we just have to educate the rest of them and save us from getting entangled in this mess. Even if we do get entangled in this mess, people can still say no. You know, we don't have robot armies to control us. Um, right now, if everybody says we're not taking your 100-day, you know, vaccines with no liability, we're done with your pandemic program, uh, we don't want, we're, we're not going to pay our taxes to fund gain-of-function research, you know, we can all do that. We can say no, no masks, you know, we're all going to send our children to school whether or not they've had a COVID vaccine, because now it's on the childhood schedule, according to CDC, and they're rolling out a new vaccine in, in about another 10 days. Um, we all have to say no, and we have to educate Congress, and we have to educate the rest of the world. And um, I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. I think we're making a bit of a... Uh, nations are not right now all going along with this. They're starting to see the, the hidden dangers in these documents. So I think um, the WH, the, the amendments, they only need a 50% vote, but for the treaty, they need a two thirds vote um, of the members of the WHO. And I think at this point, they are likely not to get it. We just have to keep working on it. So fantastic. Um, there's a lot to do, but it's it's very hopeful. And once everybody understands what is being done under our noses to basically tighten this pandemic noose around our necks, you know, we will never let it happen again. Well, and I agree with you on that. I think that one of the biggest things that we can, in fact, this is part of what I'll be speaking on at the uh, Your Health Freedom Symposium. One of the biggest mistakes I think that those of us who are aware of what's going on here can make is throwing up our hands and saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's it's too overwhelming. You know, yes, we can control what we can control for ourselves and maybe for our families to some degree, but uh, the fight isn't a fight that we can win. What I saw uh, very, very clearly, especially as COVID-19 uh, rolled on and the lockdowns rolled on and the vaccination push and mandates and all these things rolled on, is more and more people saying, you know what, I actually have had enough. I'm not going to go along with this anymore. People starting to listen to voices like yours, uh, digging into alternative media sources where they could hear actual information, uh, which was being labeled as misinformation or disinformation during this process. And people started to smell what really stunk. And I believe that the cards were pushed so far out onto the table that millions and millions of Americans and and uh, far more than that, you know, worldwide started to say, whoa, this you, they, they were naive. You, you even called yourself naive at the very, very beginning of this thing. And I think I was as well. But they were naive, and after a while, things were shoved down their throat so far that they almost didn't have any option but to regurgitate. You know, I do this other 
uh, podcast uh, called Dearly Discarded, where I interview people who've been injured by these COVID vaccines, uh, who have been basically pushed aside by all the government agencies, ignored completely by the vaccine manufacturers who injured them. And have and and the stories are all too similar in all of those categories, the gaslighting and everything else that's gone on. But I'll tell you what, those are some of the biggest and baddest uh, freedom fighters that we have in this country now because they've been hurt, their families have been hurt, and the families who have seen them been hurt are be hurt have stood up and said, "This won't happen again." I believe that apathy is our biggest enemy at this point and that all of us regardless of the perceived risks must stand up and say absolutely never again yes exactly we have great a great deal of power you know the the powers that be don't want us to realize it they've done everything they could to make us feel powerless and that we have no options and the the whole trick is sticking together you know, having, if you're the only one, yes, they can get you. But if you've got a telephone list and there's 50 people coming to your house, if the cops come to arrest you or vaccinate you and 50 people show up, the cops are not going to be able to do that. And um, we, we have to build our networks and they will grow and we will be kind to each other. You know, we will get rid of this. We have a society now where the institutions don't work for us any longer. They're all, they're all about control. You know, they're not educating our children properly at schools. We've got gender nonsense going on. We have pronouns. Um, we don't need that. You know, we, we have police that have been given military weapons. Now we know that was so they could be used against us. We have to tell them to put those weapons aside, get rid of them. You know, get, let's get back to policing yeah. again. Let's adequately fund the police. You know, we don't want it. We don't need an army against Americans and, and you know, Posse Comitatus says that the army is not to be used against American citizens. So anyway, there's there's much to be done. There are problems, but the the elites that are trying to, you know, pull this, the wool over our eyes and do this to us, they've gone too far. We can see what they're doing and we will stop them. I 100% agree. And and what you said about community and bonding together is so val- valid and so valuable. And that is why I keep encouraging everybody listening to sign up, get your tickets to your Health Freedom Symposium, because you will meet people uh, of a like mind. You will find community and you will feel empowered at that event. I've done it now two years in a row. This will be my third year uh, speaking, but also listening uh, to all the other speakers and listening to my fellow citizen and their concerns and recognizing that none of us are alone in this. There is a big group of people that are putting their feet down and saying, absolutely not. So, I am so grateful for the time that you've given me today. We've taken you longer than what I said, and I apologize for that. But your voice is such a powerful one and such a necessary one. Um, can keep doing what you're doing. I can't wait to meet you in person in about a month uh, at the Your Health Freedom Symposium. Uh, thank you so much, Meryl Nass, for your time. Thank you. All right. And for the rest of you listening... 
There will be some fantastic uh, links in the show description, uh, one to a, uh, an article that is uh, recently released or was recently released uh, by uh, Merrill Nass that you're going to want to read for sure. Uh, some other good information on how you can follow her work will be in the show description. And of course, the link to Your Health Freedom Symposium will be there as well. But you can go to that very simply at Your Health Freedom. That's yourhealthfreedom.org to get tickets for this event. Uh, There's a gala on the 6th, uh, which always sells out, and then the main event on the 7th, which is the symposium where you'll uh, hear from the two voices on this podcast along with some other absolutely uh, fantastic voices in this fight for medical freedom and health freedom. So I encourage you very, very strongly to get there, uh, alert your friends and family to it. Uh, Let's fill those seats, and I'll become more empowered together. Thank you so much for listening to me and for listening to Vitality Radio on a regular basis. I appreciate it very, very much. I hope that these episodes are empowering to you to help you leave your live your best life. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you.